Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK. Coming up, trains, campaigns, and Mary Jane. Governor Cuomo's State of the State address covered lots of ground, and political reporter Jarrett Murphy is here to dissect it. He used to call marijuana a gateway drug. Now he's calling for it to be, I guess, a gateway we can all open up and go through. Um, <laughs> and then the question we're all afraid to ask for fear of appearing stupid. What is democracy? A new documentary helps us out. Democracy needs to go much deeper. It needs to be part of the fabric of our lives. And it's something that we do. It's not just these rules that then we just sort of polish and protect and keep cordoned off from the rest of life. wants New York City to foot half the bill to repair the broken subways. The mayor says the governor's high. And in 100 days, that will be perfectly legal, according to the plan Governor Cuomo laid out in his State of the State address. But come for the weed, stay for the election reform, the plastic bag ban, educational policy, and presidential aspirations. We're going to talk about all that and whether Cuomo can live up to expectations now that he's got a Democratic-controlled legislature for the first time since he's been in office. Joining us is regular contributor Jarrett Murphy, executive editor of City Limits. Welcome, Jarrett. Thanks for having me. So you've been on the show a number of times, but this is the first time you've been on with me. So uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. And if you don't brag on yourself a bit, I, I will do it for you. So uh, <laughs> tell me about City Limits and, and what you do over there. Well, City Limits is a 43-year-old nonprofit news agency. We do investigative and in-depth reporting on New York City policy issues, affordable housing, environmental justice, criminal justice. And I've been doing that for uh, just about 12 years. And you have an encyclopedic knowledge of state and local That's politics, That's a frightening I thing to say. say, but okay, I'll take that, sure. Um, so state of the state, not a lot of surprises. Uh, some of the stuff had been covered in his inaugural speech late last year as well. But can you give us sort of like a broad overview of some of the takeaways? So this was a sweeping progressive vision of the state. I think we have to say that. I mean, it wasn't surprising because we've been moving this way for a long time, but it was about broad criminal justice reform, ending cash bail, better discovery laws. It was about legalizing marijuana. It was about adding more education funding and trying to direct it to schools that have more low-income students, um, a lot of infrastructure work, a lot of stuff around election reform, campaign finance reform, calling for a public financing system. This is a different Cuomo from just a few years ago. Yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about these speeches going back over his entire gubernatorial time. And yeah, first few were very centrist, very let's solve problems, the state's a mess, let's beat grown-ups, put the house in order. You know, and that was coming out of the financial crisis. It was a different time, resisting some of the very things that he was calling for yesterday. He used to call marijuana a gateway drug. Now he's calling for it to be, I guess, a gateway way we can all open up and go through. Um, <laughs> sure. So he finally has a Democratic-controlled legislature, and he said that he felt liberated. Um, he said, it's just us. We are in control. Do you think he actually feels that way, or is he a little sad that he no longer has a scapegoat? Um, that's been everyone's suspicion that you know he liked working with Republicans, and he did. I mean, he used that to his advantage. Andrew Cuomo is a masterful politician. Uh, he knows how to work every room, regardless of it's a one-person room or a thousand people, and he will figure out a way, I think, to get what he can out of the state Senate. It is a Democratic majority of 40. That's a very powerful, sizable majority. But within that are natural cleavages along lines of ideology, 
race, geography, on different issues. I think if the governor wants to try to find a faction that will support him and back him and either push forward on or hold back on some of these changes, he'll be able to do that. So I want to get to the substance in just a moment, but you mentioned what a skilled politician he is. And there are a few quirks when he delivers uh, State of the States like this or, or other addresses. One thing that struck me is that he kept on clamoring for applause when he didn't feel like he was getting the applause that a point deserved. He called people out on it. We should do that now for <laughs> right. people sitting at home. If That's you right. haven't clapped yet, please do so. That's yes, right. I, didn't, the whole... I feel like you haven't laughed enough, actually. I'm, sorry. I'm just going to say that now. So. Um, yeah, the whole state of the city has this weird sort of shtick around it, um, this strange pageantry. And yeah, there's a lot of clapping. A lot of people are thanked and clapped for multiple times to make sure they feel thanked and clapped for. So there is a tremendous amount of that, which is strange because it's a very serious speech. It lists basically the policy agenda for one of the biggest states in the country for a year, but it does have this slightly sort of arch, sort of winky uh, Borscht Belt feel to it. So yeah. it's not my favorite day of listening, but um, <laughs> you know, this one at least had some substance to it. I mean, speaking of the Borscht Belt, he starts out by talking about all of these infrastructure accomplishments. He talks about the state fair, and he also talks about this new comedy museum, and he even shills for the comedian who has an upcoming show at this comedy museum and I don't know, where whatever. <laughs> well, see, that was his joke. The, com the comedian who was appearing is the chief of his economic development authority, okay, who I'm sure is very, very funny. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure it's going to be a hilarious down night. the house. Yeah, definitely. Yes. Um, he also mentioned that that comedy museum had received visitors from 49 out of 50 states, which begs the question. Who is stiffing us? That's right. That. I yeah. would like somebody Rhode to Rhode Island has that. no sense of humor, apparently. It's so probably I think, it. Yeah, I blame them. So let's get a little bit to the substance of the state of the state, Green New Deal. So that's a seriously progressive piece of this agenda. Mm -hmm. um, tell us a little bit about what he has in mind for the state. So that's a phrase that, as you know, a lot of people are using, and it means different things, the Bernie Sanders version, the Ocasio-Cortez version, the Andrew Cuomo version. For him, it means mainly a pledge to get the state on 100% renewable power by 2040, which is fairly ambitious. And then in the interim, a few different steps, cleaning up this plume in Long Island Sound, this like cloud of pollution that's moving toward the shoreline, killing fish. He wants to finally take care of that. Uh, and then the plastic bag thing, which, as you know, a couple years ago when the city moved to impose a fee, a five-cent fee on bags, he put on the brakes uh, because there were complaints about whether that was going to be um, financially regressive um, and right. punitive to poor people. Right. And he's called for an outright ban. Obviously, there will be some exceptions to that. Newspaper bags. bags. Exactly, yeah. newspaper mm -hmm. bags. But he's called for a ban, and that will be, you know, it will seem like a small thing compared to these sort of sweeping changes of criminal justice and other things. But there are a lot of plastic bags around my neighborhood, I'm sure yours as well. And it's the kind of thing that people get very, very personal about. People either hate plastic bags or really hate the idea of not being able to use them. I wouldn't be surprised if that becomes one of the more controversial aspects of the next three or four months. I feel like we're going to be seeing a lot of American beauty memes going around. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, you mentioned criminal justice. Talk to me about some of the plans for that with cash bail, also the expungement of marijuana records. Well, that's interesting. So he's called for a while for ending cash bail, improving speedy trial laws and improving the state's discovery laws, which are among the worst in the country. Defendants, what they receive and when they receive it, what their lawyers receive from prosecution is pretty abysmal. People have been calling for a change in that for years. And all of that fits into other criminal justice goals like closing Rikers. If you improve those parts of the system, you need to put fewer people in Rikers to await trial. But the marijuana expungement is an interesting issue. In the governor's call for legalizing cannabis for adults and 
he also mentioned raising the uh, smoking age for tobacco products as well from 18 to 21. He called for sealing some past convictions. Right. And this sealing, has become, not expunging. Exactly. Mm-hmm. This has become an interesting point of contention between the governor and criminal justice advocates who've been calling for legalizing pot for years. They've got that now, basically. Now the question is, what do you do for all the thousands of people affected by the laws in the past? Do you seal it, meaning that it kind of goes away, but it's sort of still there? Or do you expunge it, meaning, you know, effectively it doesn't exist anymore? And which convictions do you expunge or seal? Misdemeanors, violations, felony convictions? Um, That's where there'll be some interesting debate on this, I think. Right. And that's just one facet of legalizing marijuana. Uh, There are going to be many other obstacles to getting this, this done. And he's saying, 100 days. So what is realistic and what type of timeline do you think that we're looking at? I suspect in 100 days there will be some sort of a plan, and I suspect that plan will have built into it points for considering the details. You know, 100 days to, like, set forward a process by which some state authority will create rules around this. That would be a very quick timetable. And one thing he mentioned that Mayor de Blasio has also said is the desire to make this not a corporate takeover of marijuana, to try to have it be grassroots, to have some of the money flow Uh back to communities. Good good one. one. Uh, Flow back to communities (laughs) that have been affected by it. That is something that's going to get a lot of support, but that's complicated to do. Um, Setting this up has proven complicated for some other states. It will be for us, too. And, you know, it's not something that people across the state are uniformly supporting. So there'll be pushback. Already some towns and villages have passed bans saying no dispensaries here. As those continue to proliferate, we can see what the patchwork uh, of the state looks like. So instead of a big pot business, we're looking at more mom-and-pot stores. Exactly. Right. Um, So one of the biggest applause lines or applause segments of the speech was his women's rights laundry list of of things that he wants to push through, including the elimination of uh, statute of limitations on rape. He wants to codify Roe v. Wade. Talk to me a little bit more about his women's rights agenda. This is interesting. Yeah, he talked for a while about his own religious background, which is interesting. He doesn't usually do that, about his relationship with the Catholic Church as he discussed the Child Victims Act. And then he also related that to the issues of marriage equality and abortion. With Roe v. Wade, it has long been uh, argued by Cuomo and others that you need to codify the state's protections. He wants to take it a step further and actually make it part of the state constitution, which would require, I believe, a public referendum and a second passage by another body of the legislature. So it sets it on a longer, if firmer, path, which I think is is very interesting. You know, he also talked about outlawing. Um, he called it non non consensual revenge porn. I would assume that most revenge porn is non consensual, right. but uh, steps like that too. Right. Let's talk about the MTA, something that is on the forefront of all of our minds. Did he talk about the L train shutdown at all? Did he talk about how we're paying for MTA repairs? Did he talk about the process by which these things need to be approved by both the governor and the mayor? This was interesting. So he developed a couple of things that he's talked about for a while. One is congestion pricing. We know he supports that now. Um, it says he wants it to happen, says he wants it to apply to everyone, but a lot of details not discussed. How much will it cost? What times of day will it apply? Will there be any exceptions? Those are areas where we might get some pushback from legislators uh, in areas that are affected by it. Surely. But the most fascinating part of it was the discussion of the governance of the MTA, his argument that it being split up among the governor and the mayor and the speaker and the county executives, that authority and responsibility and accountability is too diffuse, and that makes it very difficult for us to get things done. Now, this is coming from the governor who a couple years ago triumphantly inaugurated the Second Avenue subway has managed to get some things done with this system, 
but as part of this sort of bizarre episode around the L train and his suggestion, which might be valid to do it in a different way without the shutdown, um, has inaugurated this whole question about how it's run and how it's funded. And again, as you said, his desire to have the city pay for half of it. Again, no detail. What will the next thing look like that they will do to govern the MTA? He didn't have any specific proposals. Would that vest power more fully in the governor? Or as some politicians here in the city have said in the 24 hours since the speech, maybe the city should just run its transit system. Uh, if we're going to break it up, let's break it up and kind of start all over. So that would be a very interesting talk to And he watch. definitely had a bee in his bonnet about this issue. He allocated a significant period of time talking about the bureaucracy behind who got to veto whom and who was in control of decisions regarding the MTA. Totally, yeah. And all of this, you know, could be read, if we want to be cynical, at sort of diffusing some of the responsibility heaped on him. You know, folks have been saying since the MTA crisis really broke that the MTA is his problem. And when it's been convenient, he has exercised authority vis-a-vis the L train announcement a couple of weeks ago. And when not, he has suggested that it's not really his thing. You know, the tracks are owned by the city. They lease them to us. We pay for it just because we're nice guys. Let's digress a little bit and talk about the L train plan. There have been some reports that his plan to not shut down the L train and to rack the cables was actually examined by the MTA a couple of years ago and found to be too risky or too unsafe. Mm-hmm. Where are we with that? What's the what's the current? The word thinking? on that is that they did look at it and there was a concern about how they would mount these wires to the wall. But because of some advance in technology since then, apparently that concern is not what it once was. That you can treat the wall in such a way that it's going to be able to hold this stuff. Uh, this is coming from someone who. You know, has never built anything other than a bookshelf. (laughs) So that's the word. But I think there's, you know, it's a very complex process. And I think one of the questions is not just will it work, it probably will work. But if the idea is to reduce the impact of the shutdown, what kind of actual suspensions of service will be necessary to affect even this repair? Sure. And we, we've talked previously on the show about how this may disproportionately affect people uh, who work nights and weekends, who maybe are members of low-income communities, and maybe that some of the alternative transportation options are going to be whisked away from them. Well, this is a great point about the balancing act that MTA work involves, right? Do you shut it down for everybody for a short period of time and like ruin a lot of lives? Or do you shut it down here and there and only affect those people who happen to use it at that time. For most of us, it won't be a big deal. For those people, it can be life-changing. So yeah, those are real considerations. So back to the state of the state, is he going to run for president? (laughs) (laughs) He wants you to wonder that. He wants us to be talking about this. He has said definitively a couple times in the past six months that he is not running for president. Do you buy it? And then he has gone around and done absolutely everything to fuel that speculation. Right. I think that Andrew Cuomo is in a position where he can hold this at arm's length, but not totally dismiss it for a long time because it's a very unsettled landscape. There are a lot of names in the mix. Kirsten Gillibrand officially in the race now from this state. Mayor Bloomberg, perhaps Mayor de Blasio also being involved. I mean, who knows? Give Americans what they want. Exactly. New all, York all New York <laughs> right. presidential race. What That's more right. could you ask for? Um, so, yeah, we'll be hearing uh, him, I think, continuing to kind of play that, that game. Yesterday's speech was interesting. A lot of it was this kind of schlocky or very wonky policy talk. And then at the end, a soaring portion talking about kind of his vision of America, inclusive, everybody's an immigrant if you weren't a Native American, rejecting kind of Trumpism. 
that is interesting to watch because that's the kind of thing that will go on CNN, not the stuff about, you know, the trash can in Utica that he's funded. Right. But what a trash can in Utica. It's a beautiful trash can. Let's yeah. have some applause for that. Um, final question for you. If you were a betting man, uh, which, oh, by the way, you may be able to bet on sports. Uh, yes, at apparently. At the casinos, which are otherwise not doing very well. <laughs> That's sort right. Of for a different time. So if you were a betting man and you had to put money on either de Blasio or Cuomo running for president, who would it be? De Blasio won't do it. Uh, Cuomo, I'd put, um, I'd call him, you know, 50-50. Okay. Thanks so much for joining us, Jared. Thank Appreciate you. your time. Democracy. What is it? Where did it come from? Why do all the other girls hate it? And is it here for the right reasons? These are the questions asked by filmmaker Astra Taylor in her latest documentary feature, What is Democracy?, which premiered in New York on Wednesday at IFC. Here's a brief clip from the trailer. Everywhere you look, democracy is in trouble. How do you make democracy out of an undemocratic people? That's our problem today. Democracy, it doesn't feel like this in my head. It doesn't feel like being scared for my life. Astra Taylor, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. So you started working on this film pre-2016 elections, is oh, that right? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I wrote the first email to my producer in 2013 and started shooting at the end of 2015. So what was the impetus for your wanting to explore democracy? I was always, I've always been a very political person, somebody interested in social justice, but I was specifically, there were two things. I was involved in Occupy Wall Street. And so we chant, we go down the street, the classic chant, this is what democracy looks, looks like, like, right? Yeah. <laughs> and sometimes I would go, we need it to look like so much more than this, right? We right. need to govern, we need to make our society more just. So yes, democracy is a protest, but it also has to be, it has to be more. And, and so I felt that we knew, we knew what we were against, concentrated wealth, inequality in all of its forms, but you know, did we know what we were for and how we would do it? And then I also wrote a book about the internet called The People's Platform that was sort of debunking the Silicon Valley claim to democratize everything. And uh, so then I was like, well, what would a democratic internet be, you know? So this word democracy was coming up in my, my activism and my writing. And I just felt that it would make a really interesting topic for a movie because it would naturally allow for all sorts of voices. And I think that's what documentaries do really well is they show people. Some people are against talking heads, but I love... I love conversation. You know, I love I love people. And so this film is just full of different kinds of people. And I asked them this question, what is democracy, which is such a basic question. It's it's almost an embarrassingly simple question, but it's really important. It's, it's become a lot more important since I started working on it. Absolutely. Um, did it shift at all when Trump was elected? I think I thought it would. Right. So there's this fear like, oh, my God, I've spent all this time working on this film and now Donald Trump is the president. But what was actually interesting is how all of the issues that I had been investigating, all it did was make them more timely. The big questions of political philosophy that the film engages with, who rules, who are the people, how do we make decisions, who's left out, what are borders, all of these questions just took on a new urgency. The film looks at Plato and the Republic, which warns about the way that the rise of the demagogue happens when there's this divide between the rich and the poor. And, and basically Plato says, and the, and the city will split into two cities, right? So here we have this demagogue. So actually Trump just made things more timely. And, um, and so the challenge actually was just not focusing on him because that's, 
that's the reality we're living in now, where each tweet gets so much attention, and to actually take a step back and say, a lot of our democratic challenges didn't begin in November 2016. They go way back, and and we have to think about them. We have to wrestle with them. We have to struggle. Um, and you know, our problems are are deep. Problems with racism. Problems with um, capitalism. These aren't problems that started recently. Absolutely, and hopefully yeah. he'll be but a blip <laughs> yes. in the long continuum of history. <laughs> of human history, That's exactly. Right. Um, and also, in the middle of this process, you became a U.S. citizen. Is that right? Yeah, so I'm, I'm Canadian. The film was produced by the National Film Board of Canada, and they were co-producers on my last film, which is called Examine Life, which is a series of walks with philosophers. So I, I make films pretty rarely, but we got a through line here. Yeah. Yeah, I, have, I have philosophical cinema kind of down. <laughs> um, if you need a nerdy movie, I'm your director. Uh, so the National Film Board of Canada produced it, and it's this beautiful institution because they they make films with uh, for the public for the public interest. So it's you know it's not a market driven place. It's like what what is what film has meaning. But I've lived in the U.S. since I was a kid. But I was a green card holder, so I did. I became a citizen only six months ago. It actually turned out I, I proved that I had always been a citizen all along, which is a really interesting thing. And the question of citizenship is central. I mean, it's also a theme in the film. Who is included in the demos? What does it mean to be a citizen, right? Who, who, how do you become included when you've been excluded? You know, when we associate citizenship with voting and democracy has to be so much more than that. So these questions, I was sort of living them personally. And then I was also exploring them in a cinematic context. Yeah. Did it influence your filmmaking at all as you were, um, you know, doing the requisite study yeah. for the citizenship exam? You know, I that? started to think about it because... I think what it made me realize is that my whole life, because I was disenfranchised in the place I lived, and so in Canada, you can't vote if you've lived far away for too long, mm. and so then here I can vote because I had a green card. So I think for me, democracy was always more than voting, right? I had to find other ways to have a voice other than just sort of casting a ballot every four years and thinking, okay, my work is done. So I was an activist. I'm a writer. You know, the art I make has a has a social conscience, you know? So I think then I, when I went to vote, I was like, oh, is this what people think democracy is? Just like waiting in line at a school and filling out some, some dots? And so, you know, for me, I think it... That's why the film has a very expansive concept of democracy, and it's, it says, yes, of course it is government. It is who represents... But you don't see, for example, in the film, you don't see people voting. So the film is called What is Democracy? But you don't see people voting. You don't see the White House. You do see some some representatives. You do see structures of government. It does talk about how do we structure our democracy, who's counted, who's not. But then it's part of the argument is we need to expand democracy into all these other realms of life, the workplace, our schools, hospitals, and healthcare, right? Like democracy needs to go much deeper. It needs to be part of the fabric of our lives. And it's something that we do. It's not just these rules that then we just sort of polish and protect and keep cordoned off from the rest of life. So in the film, you talk to everyone from Cornell West and yeah. Angela Davis to people on the street. Yeah. What do you think the average person thinks democracy is? Well, I have a much better sense of that from making this movie because I did a lot of, you know, Vox Pop and I did them in uh, Europe and I did them here. A lot of people, if you just ask them, they don't have a really deep, profound answer to the question of it's what democracy question. is. It's a hard question. And I think people might have more of one now because there's this pervasive sense that we're in a political crisis, right? And there's a lot of turmoil. But when I was shooting the film, you know, some people would say freedom or elections. Some people couldn't define the word at all. And so I think to me that was symptomatic. It's not for me, uh, it's not like 
you know, this just proves that people aren't worthy of democracy. To me, it's actually a symptom of the fact we live in a society where democracy isn't that much, something we do that much of, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's not something people really experience at, at the job or in their in their schools. So it's it's not really a surprise that it's not something people have a very deep conception of. At the same time, when I dug, so then I would say, I would really sit with people and I would approach everyone I interviewed as though they were a philosopher, right? Capable of thinking and contemplating. And once I dug into the issue with them, people would say really profound, interesting things, right? So they might not just have a definition on hand, but they could really connect political issues to their lives. What is, what is someone, or what was something that someone said that really surprised you? So I did one scene with some middle schoolers from an, an after-school program in, in Miami, mm-hmm. so from a really poor school district. And what I did was I just connected the issue of democracy to their education and to their school. And they had a really astute analysis of power, of race, of class. And these are kids who are like 12 or 13 years old. Part of what the film, I hope, shows is that there's all this capacity. There's all this democratic potential that we're not really unleashing in our society. So Churchill famously once said, and I will paraphrase, that democracy is the worst form of government, except, of course, for all the others. Do you think that democracy is the form of government that we should stick with? Are you leaning more socialist, fascist? Who knows? (laughs) Well, I mean, I think for me, democracy would be socialism, right? Mm -hmm. But to me, if you say, okay, well, what is democracy? It's socialism. That doesn't solve the problem of thinking through what it means for the people to govern themselves, right? Who makes decisions? How do we do it? I mean, I would say actually that democratic socialism would actually make these questions of democracy even more urgent because right now, in my opinion, it's pretty obvious what we need to do, right? Eight people, eight men control half of the world's wealth, right? Eight billionaires. So that's totally unacceptable in a system that claims to be a democracy, right? We have an oligarchy. That sort of economic imbalance undermines the political equality democracy demands. And and if you poll people, look at how high approval is for this idea of a 70% marginal (laughs) tax rate, right? Mm -hmm. So we can say, you know, racism's bad, sexism is bad, let's undo economic inequality and share the wealth. But then we still have then we'd still have to figure out how do we govern ourselves. If we could solve all of that, democracy would still be messy. We'd still have to say, okay, well, does this workplace have control? What about the community? Like, how do we manage environmental resources and scarcity? How do we make you know? How do we account for the people who aren't born yet and generations to come? So, like, the question of democracy is not going to go away, even in a much more economically egalitarian world. And so, this film doesn't pretend there's an easy answer. It's like we have to keep thinking. We have to keep working on it. So, democracy to me. The title is a question because there is no answer. It's something we have to wrestle with collectively forever. So that's a spoiler that there is no answer. That is a spoiler. Okay, see it. No car chase. (laughs) You know. (laughs) Um, So you mentioned some heavy hitters who you interviewed. Is there someone alive or dead who you really wish you could have brought into the film? Oh my God! I I you know I live my life reading books by like all these people who I who I admire so much, who who are no longer in the world. I mean, uh, Mary Wollstonecraft would be mm. great. Um, I would love to interview Rosa Luxemburg. I would love to interview Karl Marx. I mean, uh, James Baldwin. Oh, my God, so many. If only I could figure out how to how to bring them back so well, I can talk to them. <laughs> you also have a companion book coming out that I think addresses things on a bit more of a, um, a grand philosophical yes. spectrum. So tell us a little bit about the book. When's yeah. it coming out? What's it called? Yeah. So as I was making the film, I also worked on a companion book because a movie has to... Cinema has its own language, right? It's a visual medium. So, so much of it is about showing and not telling. And I wanted to make a film that had a voice that was inviting, that questioned, that made space to hear 
others. It's not just about me and what I think, right? The film is democratic in its form. And I wanted to make a film that was a pleasure to watch. But I had all of these thoughts, all of these you know, opinions and all this history I wanted to convey. So I wrote a book called Democracy May Not Exist, But We'll Miss It When It's Gone that's coming out in May for Metropolitan Books. It's out May 7th. And that's where I really flesh out all of the contradictions and paradoxes and the history and the possibilities that I think are they're implicit in the film. But because of what a film is, I couldn't make them explicit. And tell people where they can see the film if they live in New York. So the film is playing at IFC Center. Sunday night, there will be a guest appearance with Dr. Cornel West, so that'll be great. Please come see it. Maybe it'll be held over, and people can book the film actually in their communities, in their schools, by going to Zeitgeist Films, the distributor. Terrific. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And that's the show for today. Have a great weekend. We'll be back on Monday, Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and joined by economic and political equality advocate and frequent MSNBC and Bill Maher show contributor Heather McGee. Hope you can join us. BK is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 